front of you and go to Mark chapter 9. We are walking through chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the gospel account that Mark has written down under the leadership and guidance of the Apostle Peter. He was the, right, uh, the, 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 uh, the authorship uh, detail giver to, to John Mark who wrote this. <clears throat> what we've been seeing is that Easter week is approaching. Jesus is soon to be lifted up as the bloody, gory mess, the Lamb of God slain to take away the sin of the world. He's, that's coming. And, and in the lead up, he is taking his disciples, his inner crew now, he's, he's mostly staying away from the large crowds and he's mostly discipling the inner 12. And he's been teaching them that the cross must occur. I, the Son of Man, the authoritative Christ, I have to die and then I'll be raised up. And then he's been using that opportunity to teach them what life in the kingdom of God after Jesus is resurrected will look like. That if they kill the Christ, the King, the Lord, what do you think your life's going to be like? Will they have more respect for the foot soldiers than for the general, for the servants than for the king? No, your life, if we would be disciples of Jesus, we've already seen in weeks gone past, that we will have to be those who give up our worldly pleasures, give up our selfish ambitions. We don't come to Jesus so that we can get better at football and get famous. We don't come to Jesus so that he can uh, uh, give us all the blessings that we just can't get by our own uh, uh, physical strength. We come to Jesus to serve. And that always means that we come to Jesus to let the old man or the old woman, the sinful person of the flesh, die. And then we walk after Jesus in his pattern of life, death, and resurrection power. And this week, we come back to another repetition of Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection, and then he's going to focus on a discipleship lesson for them. Today, while last week and the weeks prior, he's shown them that true life, eternal life, comes through death. Now he's going to show them that true greatness, spiritual greatness in the eyes of God, comes through humility. And lowliness. So read with me now in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 30. <clears throat> we'll be reading through to verse 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I'd be afraid too if the last guy who sparked up at that sort of statement was Peter and Jesus called him Satan and said, get out of here, embarrassed him in front of the other 12. So now they're confused, but they're not going to rebuke him. They're afraid to ask what that means. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and said, While taking him in his arms, Whoever receives one such child... In my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. 
John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will not be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to you to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose their reward. May God bless the reading and preaching of his own inspired, inerrant, authoritative word to us this morning. What we see here and what may seem like three disjointed, randomized spattering of stories is three small passages showing to us the one main theme that Mark wants to get across to us, how human pride prevents true greatness. How human pride prevents true greatness. Firstly, we're going to see that human pride desires to be praised by others. Next, we'll see how human pride desires to be served by others. And thirdly, we'll see that human pride desires to be followed by others. So let's start back in verse 33, where Jesus begins to teach them some lessons. We first see that Jesus rebukes and pushes back against the fact that the human pride that is still latent and powerful and turned up to full volume, it seems, in the disciples, he wants to show how that is something that is utterly preventing them. It is a stumbling block that will keep them from inheriting and walking in true greatness according to the kingdom principles that Jesus will establish. Man's most natural state is to desire and demand the praise of others. They had been arguing on the way that they came to this house and they thought Jesus hadn't heard them. Maybe they forgot that he had that divine side which could just tune in to conversations like a, like a mother with eyes on the back of her head. Maybe, maybe they, they're pretty thick. Maybe they just forgot that they were talking so loudly in their fight and argument about who the greatest was. Whatever the case, Jesus had heard them. He knows what it was that they were arguing about and he goes into the house. He asks them what they were talking about and they were utterly silent. Quiet, embarrassed, not wanting, to, not wanting to arc up and admit what they had done. And Jesus gathers them together, sits down to assume the, the rabbi uh, uh, posture, which is what the Jews would do. You would sit down, your students would gather, and you would teach them a lesson. Even in the presence of Jesus, the human nat- natural side of us that desires praise is not eradicated. Even moments after Jesus is telling them about the fact that the Son of Man must die and rise, that yet doesn't push out of their human nature the desire for praise. Even that this is rich, right, warm off the back of the experiences that are displayed to the disciples that they had no duty arguing about who was great. They, they had just been, one of them, rebuked by Jesus, as we said. You, you're a fool. You're thinking like Satan. You, you don't know how to think in the kingdom of God, Peter. And then the rest of them had, had, had tried for six days or so to try and heal a demon-possessed boy, and they couldn't do it all because they hadn't even prayed about it. And then Jesus comes back, does it with a word, and here they are, completely shattered and embarrassed. That still doesn't stop them from thinking that they deserve praise as the greatest. So even having experienced, first of all, Jesus' 
power in, in exercising the demon. And the three of them who had seen the transfiguration where Jesus was blazing white, a, a glowing, shining manifestation of the glory of God, that God's own voice came down through a cloud and said, this, this is my son, listen to him. Even those three were not exempt from, from this ridiculously immature argument that is really laying at the bottom of all of our hearts, the desire to be praised. Nothing, nothing in all of creation is able to remove from your heart and my heart and even the disciples' heart this side of the resurrection. Until we are made new in the resurrection or we enter into heaven as disembodied souls, nothing has the power to completely eradicate our desire for the praise of other people. And therefore, we must always be on the lookout. Don't think that this is one of those lessons that sort of gets checked off as the resurrection comes about. This is one of those before Jesus died lessons. We don't need to think about it quite so much. No, friends, we have to hear this. It is so natural for us. If it's not at the forefront of our mind to check it and put it to death, then it will be growing unbeknownst to us. We desire more than we ought, the, the praise of other people, glory that comes from man. It is to us as natural as breathing. It is as, as instinctive as the fleshly lusts for sexual pleasure or food and drink to eat or as natural as breathing. Some of those may be sinful desires. Some of those are just who we are. And all of that culminates in the desire, really the first sin to be praised in the place of God. From the newest Christian to the most mature Christian, we have the indwelling sin that brings about the desire to be praised by other people. And the way it manifests is in multiple ways. It, it might be that we, we just struggle to serve. We cannot come to church or fellowship group or go to a friend's house or do anything in the, for the sake of the kingdom and other people. We can't do it and go home without a thank you. We'll just be so bitter if we don't get a thanks, a congratulations, somebody just notes. And of course, you'll say, oh, all praise to God, man. You know, not me, not me, but, but keep it coming. We, we won't be able to serve without the thanks. That, that's our fuel that keeps us running. Or it, it manifests in the sense that we, <coughs> we, we have a bitterness towards other people who are more widely seen or who are more, more noticed by other people. And, and we start racking up the tallies and going, I've served more hours than them. I've been here longer than them. I've done more kingdom work than them. Why are they being seen more than me? It manifests through being motivated to do great things, good things, godly things, that after this sermon, don't go and rip your name off all the rosters. Don't tell your friends, I've got to stop visiting you in hospital. I'm sorry. I was doing it for my own praise. Suffer alone now, dear friend, for the sake of Jesus. No, we, we, we don't, don't, don't hear me saying that, but we are able, all of us, to do good and godly things underneath, though, being motivated by the praise from other people that will come as a result. Sometimes, though, this comes around in the opposite way, that it masks itself as humility. We refuse to do things for the church, for the kingdom, for other people, and, and we'll, we'll sort of plaster over it a, oh, brother, I, I'm not like that. I, I don't want to be seen to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to see, be seen to sort of popping myself up. You'll have to do it on your own, suffer alone, do it yourself, find someone else to do. It can mask itself so sneakily as humility where we would otherwise jump at a path that is a fast-tracked 
praise, glory show. Jesus sat these men down, still thinking with the flesh. He sat down before them and asked them, what were you talking about on the way here? They had been arguing debating. This was a long walk. Like this wasn't a, this wasn't a bit of a bustle, like two brothers sort of, sort of had a bit of a disagreement about who was probably the, the better server. This wasn't just James and John. This wasn't just Peter and Andrew. This was a 12-man debate. They were probably taking turns like they would in the Jewish schools to really come forward, make their case, remind everybody else about their failures, how much they suck. Like I'm sure that John probably got up, the number two guy, and said about the number one guy, Peter, can we just have a show of hands if Jesus, the Son of God, has called you Satan in the last seven days. Can I, I see that hand, brother? Thank you. Thank you for contending. No one else? <laughs> me, me neither. How many, of, uh, how many of them would have come forward with arguments for their own point, complete arguments to tear down other people? This was just not a little discussion. And Jesus was just walking, listening, hearing all the while their argumentation. It's as if they didn't even hear what he said about where they're going for him to go and die for their sins. Maybe, maybe they were wondering who had cast out the greatest demon. Maybe they were even wondering back on what Jesus had done when he cast out that demon. And, and they're, okay, so Jesus had the power, but, but who probably, if we had just a couple more tries, could have done it? That would have been me. That, would have been, that wouldn't have been James. Would they have been arguing about that? Vying for first place while the king stood not far off. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35. When he sat down, now when a Jewish teacher sits down, he's saying, take note of this. Write this down. But they didn't walk around with ink and scrolls. They, they would memorize it, commit it to memorization, and write it down later. Write this down, he's saying to them. Verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of Oh, we're going to focus on the first part. If anyone will be first, he must be last of all. Can you note with me that Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire to be first? He doesn't start telling them that desiring to be first and greatest and, and most proximal to the throne and most Christ-like and more God-glorifying and, and the most eminent disciple of building the kingdom, he never says that that is something to be rebuked for. He, he's not saying you shouldn't want to be in first place. He's just redefining what it means to be in first place. He's not saying that you shouldn't desire to be a leader, to be great in the kingdom of God, with great influence under the work of the Spirit of God. What he's rebuking is what they think that looks like and how you get to that position. Jesus wants every one of us to be the greatest, most influential, first disciple that we can possibly be with the greatest impact for Jesus, but we must see how he defines what that work is. You must, whoever would be first must be last of all. What, what he's really meaning by that is whoever would be, in the Greek word there, uh, protos means whoever would be first, front of the line. Whoever would be greatest, the, the overarching name, the most great person in the room. Whoever would be first and highest, first in line, must be lowest in position, must be last in line is what the word he uses there, eschatos, meaning last. The maxims, the methods, the mottos of the world are absolutely opposite to those of Christ. The maxims, the methods, 
the mottos of the world are absolutely opposite to those of Christ. So you don't just get to sort of bring in your self-help book or your entrepreneurship book that you've been reading from Warren Buffett or somebody else, how, 10 ways to get to the top and stomp on every skull on your way there. None of that is able to sort of be brought in here. And as long as you, you put a Bible verse at the front or, or you somehow baptize it with prayer, that that's going to be translatable to the kingdom of God. We do not become great in the kingdom by becoming great ourselves, by putting ourselves first and foremost. We become first great in the kingdom of God by being last of all and servant of all. In the world's mindset and in every one of our heart of hearts, we think that we desire that we would be the highest name, that we would have others bend to our will, that our agenda and our pleasure would always be carried out. That we would get to order people around and be praised above all. Even reading that, you've got just a little bit in you that thinks that does sound pretty good. I'd be pretty good at first place in my business. I'd much prefer being first place in this nation. I'd much rather that than where I am now. But the godly ambition that Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to be ambitious and all-consuming for greatness. But that which we must be ambitious for is that Jesus would be the highest name. That we would, with all of our life, bend to his will and pleasure and agenda and plan. That we would be ordered around like slaves in his court and that, and that he would be praised above me, in fact, above all. That's the Christ kingdom mentality that we must have towards greatness. The path to greatness is to think of yourself as least worthy to be praised and then you work to get everyone in line in front of you through the doors. How easy it is to sort of picture back in the day, maybe it's Herod, maybe it's Agrippa, Felix, Festus, somebody, one of those guys who, who would, of course, if, if anybody does go into the palace before them, it's just to lay down nice purple, red, crimson, golden carpets. How often people think that way in the Christian life, that, that you can go before me to carry me, slave. Yes, I'll, I'll let you do that as long as you're just preparing the way for my greatness. But Jesus would give us a picture that would see everybody off of the Titanic, that would see everybody into safety, in the kingdom, getting rewards and joy and peace before you. This is what it means to be last of all and truly be first of all. How different it was even from the Pharisees. You know, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the world was on its head back then. It was upside down for how we think about God's people now from this passage. But Jesus would rebuke them later on in the Gospels as, as those who, they're coming in, they're going to come give their offerings, and what do they have going before them? People with trumpets. An announcement. Here comes the religious leader coming to make their offering. How many of you had a little kazoo in your pocket that your kid was starting to play while you gave your offering this morning? And you made sure it was all in coins, so it made lots of noise as it goes in, and the deacons dragging it up the stairs on their back. This is what the Pharisees would literally do. They would have people announce when they're going to pray. They would pray in public so that everybody could see. If you were going to a table or a banquet or a feast, you would make sure that, that somebody goes in and bars your seats so that you would be at the head, at the front, right next to the host in the greatest seat of honor. 
It was a competition for greatness in the worldly sense. And Jesus was calling his disciples who had seen this happen, who had learned and been discipled by the things of man, were now needing to be turned inside out on their head to become disciples of Jesus. Friends, we have to, you, you absolutely must come to a point where you utterly disregard the praise of men and women. You have to just utterly disregard it. That, that, that doesn't mean you start spitting in faces and backhand, calling people Satan when they start complimenting you. You did a great job up there to get behind me, Satan. Dust in the eyes. All that. So you, you don't do that. You might get compliments. You might get praises, whatever, but you just don't care. You couldn't care less. Because if, if you are a servant that God is bringing to a kind of service that would get lots of praises, I assure you that along the way, Jesus has shown you the emptiness of human praises. You, you can rest assured that you can just trust God. If he's going to put you in a position where, where you're afraid, you'll start, you'll start having to get so much praise and attention, and how will you handle with it? Will you apostatize because you do like glory? Friends, if Jesus will take you there along the way, he will show you the betrayal of friends. People who butter you up and compliment you and, and come alongside you because they can tell you're on, you're on your way to glory. They can catch some of that limelight and spotlight if they hang around you. They butter you up and as soon as you become less advantageous to their own glory, they drop you like a hot sack of potatoes. Did I just mix metaphors there? Hot potato, hot sack of potatoes. It's new, you can use it. Jesus shows us that. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've experienced that. Jesus himself, as when uh, early in the Gospel of John, when, when people started gathering around him, wanted to make him king, he, and, and start to come follow him, he, he drew away from them because he knows what is in the heart of man. And therefore, he entrusted himself to no man. You must become like that. You must become a disciple that whether you get some praise or whether you get none, it has literally no effect on you whatsoever. You don't care. You're serving the one who will give all of the rewards. You're serving the one who sees everything and will never butter you up, will never miss something you did, but will always reward you for what you have given. To desire glory, and here is the danger, here is the here is the. the the scary part of this, to desire glory from other people is to put yourself, first of all, at odds with every other worldly person in the world. Because they might be your friend, they might work alongside you, maybe you're in the workplace together, but there's only one number one spot. Eventually, you start competing against other people. Eventually, your friend starts getting a little bit jealous of your popularity, your influence, your riches, your investments, whatever it is, whatever area you might work in, serve in, eventually, like James said, the lusts inside of us bring us to wage war with one another. And this happens even in the church. If you seek the glory from people, you are at war. However much you speak peace to these momentary allies, you are at war with every other sinful person. But much worse, you're setting yourself in opposition to God. Because he is the one who is ordained that in the final day, the vast majority of the human race would give him glory. He's the one who has said that eventually, whether it be willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and confess him as Lord in all glorious God. 
When you desire to, to take some of that for yourself, you are stealing from the Almighty God. And therefore, James goes on to say, God opposes the proud. He marks your number out on the footy field and makes sure the hit is big. That's what God does. He opposes you. That word is literally, he marks you out and sets himself opposite you. You're the 5'8". He's the massive Islander center that should seriously be in the Ford pack. And he'll flatten you. Little sports analogy for, for those of us from Logan. <clears throat> Got to reach everybody, right? I'm, I'm trying. It's been a long time since I played rugby. How foolish a king would be to elevate to his right hand somebody who as their life ambition had wanted a throne. How foolish a general would be to, to put somebody in his right hand position who had had a past of killing anybody to get the, the first position. God is no fool. He will not be mocked. He will not elevate in his kingdom people who are in that position simply stealing glory from him. God will elevate those who he has first degraded to come to a realization that we are nothing and that he is the only one deserving of praise. To be truly great in the kingdom of God, like Jesus, is to desire no praise but all praise to be to Jesus. And then second of all, he, he says there at the end of verse 35, if you would be great, if you would be first, if you would be foremost, you must be last of all and servant of all. Second thing we want to see this morning is that pride prevents true greatness because it desires to be served by others. Firstly, it is being praised by others. Next, it is being served by others. And, and Jesus took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him up in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Being last in the world means being least in the world's eyes. And that gets you first place in the kingdom. Well, in this section, Jesus is saying that being the hardest working servant gets you the highest place in the kingdom. All human desire is to receive praise, which we've said, and yet there's another element to it which comes in here. It's not just to receive praise. It's to receive the maximum praise for the least amount of work. I know you're thinking of a boss you've had in the past. I know you're thinking about maybe, maybe somebody in the church you've known or somebody in, in a family group that you've known or whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, I've seen that happen. People want maximum praise for the smallest amount of work. They'll rock up on the job site for five minutes, be on their phone, give everybody a thumbs up, get in their Lexus, drive off to their massive paycheck. We all desire that kind of mentality in the kingdom. Oh, I want max praise for the smallest amount of work and what Jesus is showing us. Is that he will receive the greatest reward in heaven. Those who are the, the first in the kingdom are those who have served the hardest for other people. The, the servant of all, he says. Jesus' command is for us to not desire, never at any point, desire or strive to sit down on a throne until God puts you in a new body after your soul is separated from this body in the new heavens and the new earth. Do not 
cease your strenuous service for the church and Christ's kingdom until your soul leaves this body. For Paul, he said, he said, I desire so much to go and be with Jesus. I know that is every Christian's greatest desire. We don't want to die. We're not masochistic. We're not suicidal. No. But my greatest desire above all desires is to see Jesus face to face. And Paul said, but he was drawn. He, he was strained because he wanted that and yet so close. And in such a close second, Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, but I want to remain. I want to serve the church. My, my time before Jesus will be better if my time here is served to the church. So the Philippians 1, 22, he says, for me to remain in the body means fruitful labor for me. That must define our life. As long as I'm alive, if I have breath in my body and the spirit in my soul, then my life is for strenuous, fruitful labor for the kingdom of God. That's it. There'll be many ways that looks, many different manifestations depending on gifting, skills, age, maturity, and whatnot. But friends, that's what life is about. Strenuous labor for Jesus and his kingdom. If we desire the crown, if we desire rest, if you're desiring that sleep, and I know Paul had all of this, he desired just to go and get the crown for his sufferings, have one night's solid sleep, probably like a five-day nap, he's going to go home and in heaven and have one of those where he doesn't keep an eye open, watching for people, betraying him, whipping him, throwing him in prison. That's, he's just desiring the peace of heaven. But he desired all the more to serve the church in strenuous, productive labor. I wonder if that is your mentality. If that is your thought as you define your life, Paul had learned the lesson. Whoever would be first must be the servant of all. He who lays out his life, he and she is to be the greatest service to Jesus in the kingdom now and help his fellow mankind now, they will receive the greatest reward in glory. Therefore, and Augustine makes this, this note as he comments on this passage. St. Augustine, church father. He said, that's why in the church, in the New Testament, God doesn't call the leaders overrulers. He doesn't call them overlords. He calls them overseers. Because that's work. He doesn't call them kings or lords. He calls them shepherds. That's dirty hard, laborious, unglorious work. So, so that even if, if we say, yes, Christianity has sort of a, an authority structure to it, the church's function according to the hierarchy of God's ordained means, yet God was very careful to make sure that anybody who is, who is in a leadership position in God's church will receive a title that is just so degradating. I'm a shepherd. I, I, I clip filthy bits off the back of sheep. I, I pull sheep out of the mud hole that I just filled in yesterday. I, I put up fences for the 50th time because that's what sheep need. I'm feeding them slop. My hands are dirty. Knees are filthy. My eyes are red with tears, crying over the loved ones in this flock. That's what even the greatest, highest in the church receive. I love Augustine's note on that. It's okay to desire to be first, as long as you know that as first, you will need to serve more than anybody else. 
the few men and women who really believe this, the few men and women within the church who really believe this shake the world. They shake the world. We saw an example of this. The greatest example that there could be is in Jesus that we read in verse 30 through to 32. But, but, but a, a secondary example, Jesus uses a little child. Because he said all, didn't he? You have to be last of all adults. You're going to be last of all of those within your, your weight division, right? Your, your, your glory level, there's going to be maybe a few other, maybe ten, maybe you count three or four other people in this church who are sort of on your level, and you're happy to be last of them. But Jesus said all. And in their day and age, in an age where, where you just disregard children, they're, they're annoying, they get in the way, the, the, the disciples would be rebuked in another gospel for, for shooing away the children because Jesus had important things to do. And so Jesus pulls a toddler, like think two, three, four, pulls them and puts them in the middle of the group. Says, you didn't even think I meant him, did you, when I said all? But you must receive him for my sake. In other words, receive him for service. Receive him and serve him as a way of serving me. That is included in the serving of all. I, I don't think that what Jesus means here is a strict application for children's ministry. Uh, there are people who read that and it's all about bringing kids into the covenant. They end up becoming Presbyterians, so you've got to baptize them. Oh, there's as much sense in that as, as, uh, as old earth creationism. Uh, so, 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 Jesus is saying, though, he's, he's typifying here in the child somebody who is in the kingdom but childlike. In other words, don't, don't yell them out, but think of the most immature, troublesome, needy Christian who constantly is tripping over those same stumbling blocks of temptation, who constantly is ringing you up, needing help, needing advice, and you remember talking to them about this a week ago. They forget it already. That Christian who you just love to sort of delegate to another person for mentoring experience, you know? It'll be good for both of them. That Christian, those Christians, in fact, friends, that's you to some other Christian. Let's just be honest. Every one of us, as, as we think that of the, the ones who are less glorious to serve, Jesus is wanting to bring that child to typify them. The one who has no platform for you to help and then stand on top of. The one who has no basking glory that you can help and then catch some of the rays coming off that. None. The person who you get nothing out of serving. That person. The people who you get no praise for helping out. They're not even going to go and blog about it, tell somebody else. They're not going to be a stepping stone to the next rung of service. You just helped them. That's all you got. Now all you got is splinters in your hands and you smell like dirty sheep. Welcome to the club of the great in the kingdom of God. Those who serve all because they are not seeking their own praise. From there, we can look at the greatest and chief example as we look back up to 31 when Jesus said, teaching his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. He's using this language that we've referred to before of Daniel 7. Can you go to Daniel 7? No, I'm not going to do a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of that great and confusing prophecy. 
and that book, but we will draw some lessons out from, from what came to their mind. I want What came to their mind as they heard him use that language to flash forward into our mind. The great and famous prophecy of Daniel in chapter 7 and verse 13 was that he had seen the Ancient of Days, God the Father, enthroned as a shining light that could not really be seen above every other throne. And as he's starting to judge and call to account all of the the nations and the thrones of the earth, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man, one who looked like a human. And he came up to Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. The question has to be running through your mind as you hear that. What human can approach the throne of God? That human was also God. And then God did something to that human, something he would never do to anybody but himself. To him, the the man, the the human-looking person, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus, God the Son, who will receive from his Father an everlasting perfect kingdom to be served by all humans. That flashes forward to the disciples' mind when Jesus said, Son of man, lesson coming up. That one on the throne of Yahweh must be delivered into the hands of petty men, kings, and priests and will be killed. And then three days later, he's going to come back. Enjoy. They had no categories for understanding that level of glory intertwined with that level of suffering and service. And and here's what they would have been thinking. That he received glory and a crown and dominion and he was served by everybody, so we should desire to be like the Son of Man. Can't we live a life desiring to get glory, dominion, praise, service from other people? Shouldn't we be like the Son of Man? But that is not how the Son of Man lived on the earth. He lived in abject humility, humiliation, shame, and eventually disfigurement, and a bloody barbaric murder scene. Jesus emptied himself, though he was in the form of God, that Son of Man, came as a man, taking on the form of a man and a servant, serving others every day of his life, and then dying for the sins of all those who would trust him. Jesus went to the cross as the glorious God to consume the wrath of God against every person who would ever put their faith in him, the greatest act of service from the greatest king that would ever exist. And from there, because he had done that, God exalted him through the resurrection and ascension to his own right hand, from where he will receive the greatest name above every name, that name is Lord. So, no one has ever served more than Jesus. No one has been more last than Jesus. No one has been more least than Jesus. So no one will be glorified as much as Jesus. But that is the path that Jesus calls us to. I want to just come to mind is, is, a, is a missionary. He was in the, the, the Afghan 
India uh, uh, area border, the frontier of, of missions back in the, the mid-1900s. His name was, forget the name as soon as I say it, it's Jock Purves. Go get the book and then forget about his name. What an embarrassing name. He didn't even change it when he was being an author. Jock Purves would write this book called The Unlisted Legion. It was a story about him and a handful of other missionaries who went to the frontier in this Muslim, densely uh, 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 jungled, and in some parts in icy mountaintops like the Himalayas, there they went, wrapped up in animal fur, marching through the cold winters, losing toes and fingers to frostbite. There they went for one purpose, to serve those people and to bring them the soul-saving message of Jesus Christ. And Jock tells this story of a, of a message that he got one day from a, from a Muslim man, come over to our village, come and help. There's a, there's a young boy, my nephew, who is sick. The simplest of things would, would kill you in that day and in that area of the world without things like antibiotics and, and Panadol. And, and he's there and, and he rocks up into this little, uh, uh, little hut that they would have and in the middle of the hut was, was a fire because it's so cold, don't talk about ventilation, and, and it's filled with smoke and this boy has this gangrenous, festering, maggoty, green, putrid-smelling wound encasing his leg. And you go into these, these, hut, these little hut tent things and there's lice everywhere. The, the writer said that he would, he would feel an itch, reach into his shirt and pull out a handful of lice. It would take weeks to cleanse your clothes and your bedding of that and then you'd get another call, come out to somewhere else, nowhere near as hygienic. He entered into that tent and day after day for a matter of weeks he would sit there, not a trained doctor, but the little that he had he was able to help with a scalpel and scrape off the dead flesh wipe away the maggots, use some chloroform if he was able to kill the pain of the child and, and try and help. And as he labored in that smoky, festering, seemingly God-forsaken tent in some corner of the world, he would speak to this boy about Jesus Christ, who is the healer of not just our body but our souls, who came not, not just thousands of miles to be here but came from heaven itself, to help us. And, and he would speak the name of Jesus. And every time in the language the word Jesus was used, the boy would spit at the healer and curse him. So they'd been trained in their Muslim understanding that when you hear the name of Jesus, Son of God, they would spit and blaspheme him. The, 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 the family members that were sitting on the, the, the outer rings of the tent would curse and holler and throw things and spit on this man while he healed their child for using such a name as Jesus, Son of God. And on and on, he would labor and he would plead with him until there was to the point where the leg would at least be saved and he was beckoned off to do another trip and, and he was gone. And as he came back through that village later on, that boy had passed into eternity and Jock knew not where he had gone. But that, that picture is a man becoming the last of all, in the least last place in the world, the Afghan Indo frontier, serving the least of all, this boy speaking the name of Jesus. If he can do that, what an example we have before us. To serve without complaining. What rewards Jock would have received as he was ushered into the kingdom. Maybe to meet that boy, but doubtless to meet many of those Afghan people who had been saved. Pride prevents true greatness because it desires praise. It also desires to be served by all. And then lastly and briefly, we see here in the last few verses, 
that also pride makes us desire to be followed by other people. John arcs up, and maybe John's just not as smart as we thought. He's a lot like Peter here. He sort of arcs in, and maybe it's confession time. Maybe he's proud of what he did. He says, Jesus, hand up. I deserve the gold star. We rebuked somebody out there because they weren't following you. Well, okay, not true. They, were, they weren't serving you. Okay, also not true. Sorry. They were doing great work alleviating people of demon oppression and possession. They were ushering in kingdom miracles. They were, they were helping people, glorifying you as the Christ. But one little uh, knock, to the, knock to that ministry was they weren't following after us. So you're welcome, Jesus. We went ahead and ushered him to stop until they see fit to follow after us. Did he think he would be thanked by Jesus at this point? Jesus told him, do not stop him. What we see here is Jesus saying really the same lesson as before. Christianity is not about you. You understand that there's such a thing, and we all need to hear this, there's such a thing as people in the kingdom of God doing kingdom work, blessed by God, will be rewarded by God in heaven, and they don't even know your name. They don't even rely on you for anything and have not been affected by anything you've done in your whole life for Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know, John, that there's such a thing as God having an agenda that he actually didn't run by you, mate? Did you know that he has plans that he didn't actually get a referral from you for, and he has people that he didn't send by you to check out? Friends, how how relieving this is if we understand it, but how rebuking is it while we try and fight it that God just doesn't run everything by us and people don't have to be like us, following after us or giving glory to us for them to be doing God-glorifying work. This man was not following Jesus like the disciples were. True. Probably, I think, he was one of the disciples of John the Baptist who had not yet come to join Jesus' group. And yet, he's using the name of Christ. He's not blaspheming Christ. He's using Christ's name to cast out demons. And Jesus says, if your worry was for my reputation, you would have left him because he's not going to use my name, cast demons out, and then go side with the Pharisees and call me a curse. First of all, but clearly your desire was for your reputation. John brings up only one problem with the guy's ministry. He was doing good work. Like it was biblical work. It wasn't unbiblical work. A lot of people pick up this passage and go, see, we shouldn't critique unbiblical ministries. God can use the Catholics. God can use the Mormons. God can use the far left, out of here, charismaniatic stuff that that goes on. You just don't know, so don't speak ill of people shaking on the floor or going to get the Eucharist at a Mass. You You don't know what God is doing. Far, far from that. He's not calling us to crucify our our reason and our, our biblical principles that we draw from the word. He's not doing that. He's saying where you can identify good biblical work being done in the name of Christ, but the only issue, the only error is that they're not following you. Friends, be last of all. Be least of all. Do not desire that others come after you on their way into the kingdom. All glory will go through Jesus to the Father. Do not desire that all glory goes through you to the Father. Be content to serve where and who God gives us to serve, as least of all and last of all. And how good and glorious it is to realize 
and to understand. While we're being called away from self-praise and glory and, and self-service and, and we're realizing today that there's just no room in the kingdom, there's no principle in the kingdom for your service to be determined by your preferences. Jesus will never ask you what you prefer. He will ask you what he has done for you and what you will then return We've been seeing that we should not have a party spirit desiring that other people follow us, and yet, and yet the best news out of all of this is that Jesus does not make this high command of the human heart to radically change and then leave it up to you to do. Friend, the good news of the gospel is that it's, it's just a, it's, it's a gift full of promises. There's no commands in the gospel to do something and be placed into the kingdom. There's no commands or law in the gospel demanding you change in order to be saved. The gospel is full to the bottom of promises. And the promise of God through his son Jesus today is if you turn away from your sin, repent and believe in him, he gives you the heart that is like Jesus' heart to serve and be least and last of all. He will enable you by his spirit to do that which is humanly impossible, to serve others with all of your life and fight the desire for glory. Friends, don't try and earn your way into the good pleasure of God today. Don't try and work and, and do church enough or sacraments enough or sacrifices or giving or prayers enough to wash away any sin. That is not what Jesus demands. Jesus demands you as you are in your sin. Come to him. He cleanses you. He forgives you. He is your righteousness. And he will change you to be a kingdom servant and disciple. Let's pray to this King Jesus. Can you stand with me as we pray to close out? Father God, we love your word and we thank you for your word and how it meets us and rebukes us in places we didn't even realize was sinful. It meets us at places we didn't even realize we were in the practice of sinning. But Lord, like the disciples, we, we tend and we trend and we, are, and we have proclivities towards sinful desire for glory. But Lord, happy is the Christian. Happiest is the Christian who is able to jettison all hopes of self-glory and rely and rest and labor for your glory alone and whatever glory you decide to give us in reward in heaven. Lord, we seek to be a church that is first and foremost and great. We want to be people who are great as long as, God, you lead us to define greatness biblically. Make us like Jesus, not in, not in that we will sit on, a crown, uh, sit on a throne with a crown and order people around, but we don't seek that. Like Jesus, we live our life in the shadow of the cross. Let us suffer, let us labor, let us serve, and all of this with great and unending joy for he who we serve will reward. And he has died and bled for us that our sins may be forgiven. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.